Business and Buckets. We are live, episode 89, coming from the 406. Look at the beautiful Mission Mountains in the background. And I'm so hyped up to talk about this week's UFC. We're going to talk about the Avalanche, the NHL champions. I wish I had my new championship shirt in the mail, but I don't yet. And we're just going to talk a lot about uh, UFC 276. I'm getting this recorded so I can send it out to you guys as I head to Vegas to go for my 30th birthday with some of my best friends. Um, So let's dive right into it. But before we talk sports, let's talk the one and only sponsor here at Business and Buckets, and that is Fueled Supplements. Do you guys have trouble sleeping? Do you wake up groggy? Do you not even feel like you've rested? Do you toss and turn at night? If so, it's time to get knocked out. It's back. The market's leading advanced sleep and recovery formula, Knocked Out, is now in stock with the facelift. Two new flavors and an improved ingredient profile. Experience an unreal night's rest with an all-in-one sleep formula. Fall asleep faster, sleep deeper, and wake up feeling more refreshed. You can also regulate depressive and sedative actions critical for relaxation. Decrease stress and anxiety, manages cortisol and adrenaline reset. Increase growth hormone production with two delicious flavors to suit your taste buds. Watch your sleep improve, your mood improve, your productivity improve, and your life improved with Knocked Out. So save some cash when you guys use my promotion code BUCKETS for 15% off at checkout. When you go to fueledsupplements.com, promotion code B-U-C-K-E-T-S. Now we have so much to talk about. I'm so fired up after watching... Um, the UFC uh, 276 preview, the UFC Embedded this weekend, and honestly, you know, the Dirty 30 in Vegas with your friends, seeing UFC live, doesn't get much better than that. A good little fight night card will recap this past weekend, but there has been some news around the MMA world that we're going to start with. We have an amazing fight, a fight that I wish that the odds or the matchmakers would have made, and they must have been listening. We got Gregory Robocop Rodriguez versus Chidi Noquani. And holy shit, is that going to be about? That's going to be a fun one. We have Marcin Tibera versus Alexander Romanov. Another big clash in the, in the UFC world. You know, when you watch UFC in person, you see these cards. They're top to bottom great. There's opportunity for COVID, missed weight, you know, health issues. And you never want to see something happen, especially if you paid a pretty ticket price. The benefit of 276 being it could be an all-time great card, maybe even one of the best cards of all time. And um, originally bouted was Jim Miller versus Bobby Green. Bobby Green pulled out for undisclosed reasons. So insert Donald Cowboy Cerrone uh, in a rematch against Jim Miller, UFC 276. We'll break that down here in a little bit. But super excited that Jim Miller got to stay on the card and I get to see Cowboy for the first time in person before he retires. He said he has two fights left. We have Irene Aldana getting booked against Macy Chiesin. Michael Johnson versus Jamie Malarkey. Jared Vandera versus Chase Sherman. And then Lauren Murphy versus Misha Tate got booked in for Long Island July 16th. It was originally booked for this weekend. But Lauren Murphy tested positive for COVID, so that pushed. You know, would have loved to see Misha Tate um, in person, but it is what it is. Still an awesome card. Also, the UFC parting ways with some very good UFC fighters and a little bit of a shocker. 
They're parting ways with Rogerio Bontorin and Timur Valiev, uh, two guys that I thought are going to have long-term UFC careers. Uh, they decided to part ways with them. Uh, for UFC 276, the prelims, because the main, you know, the UFC, anything with a number, it's on a pay-per-view, the main card. Well, the prelims are going to air on ESPN and ABC. This will be a worldwide affair. Millions of people watching. So look for me and my friends in the stand. I'll be wearing some sugar merch um, because you got to represent the 406 right here in Montana. Outside of um, the UFC, there was Bellator and PFL action this past week. There was Bellator 282 where Johnny Eblen defeated Gregard uh, Musasi via unanimous decision. And I think this was a big shocker, not just for myself, but for a lot of people. Um, Musasi was, you know, known to be one of the, probably the better talents in Bellator and had an opportunity to maybe come to the UFC once upon a time. But this was a, a good fight by Eblen. I mean, he, he took it to Musasi. He wrestled him down. Musasi congratulated him via, via his DMs after the fight. So great win by Johnny. Magomed Magomedov, not a, a surprise here, defeated Enrique Barzola via guillotine choke in round four. And then another surprise, Alexander Shabli defeats Brett Primus via knockout in round two. What a show out by him from a former UFC fighter and really good Bellator fighter. And then Kat Zagano also beating Pam Sorensen via unanimous decision with her time back in the octagon. In the PFL, Stevie Ray defeating Anthony Pettis via modified body triangle. He had a body triangle at an angle and then torched his back kind of like a twister. I don't think I've ever seen that submission. I think Anthony Pettis was probably a little shocked about that. But P uh, Pettis is now 1-2 and two in the PFL. I think the best days uh, that he's had is behind him. And then we had Dennis Goltsov defeating Maurice Green, uh, someone who just got released by the UFC via unanimous decision and an Ultimate Fighter alum. So lots of action in the PFL. Bellator fights booked. Um, also in the fighting world, Jake Paul versus Tyson Fury is official. Uh, that's going to go down August 6th. Uh, Jake Paul had that date locked in, but now it's officially going to be against Tyson Fury. So the first time we get to see Jake Paul versus a qualified boxer. And then in the celeb world, Frank Gore, NFL running back legend, taking on Steelers legend Le'Veon Bell in a boxing bout July 30th. And I love me some Le'Veon Bell. He's been great. Um, I know he's always trained boxing for cardio. And then you have Frank Gore. I mean, a legend in the sport, a guy that just never stopped running. Um, he's a fucking tank. He has no neck, shoulder, boulder shoulders. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, due to Frank Gore's age, though, it's going to be hard for me to want to take uh, take him in this one. Uh, but either way, a fun celeb uh, boxing matchup that's worth tuning into. So, this past weekend, I went 5-3 and three in picks. Not the best card in picks. There was some, some controversial fights, but... Um, Fights we didn't talk about. There was an impressive early knockout by Cody Durden. Uh, what a back and uh, forth affair the Josh Parisian fight was. He almost got knocked out in the first round by Badu. And then the second round found a way to get the finish with a strong rally at the end of the first. Um, so nice knockout, Cody Durden. Uh, an impressive performance by Parisian. 
But we're going to start right in the prelims where MMA lab trainee and Sugar Sean sparring partner Mario Batista with a first round submission via rear naked choke over Brian Kelleher. And man, did Batista look sharp. I mean, he has grown a lot versus um, a very seasoned Brian Kelleher. Kelleher loves taking the young dogs and he usually um, teaches them new tricks, but that wasn't the case in this bout. Mario was way faster than Brian, as expected. He got the takedown early in round one, found a rear naked choke that apparently must have been very deep because I don't think I've ever seen Kelleher uh, tap so fast. So what a showing, uh, uh, early finish to start in the prelims. Uh, we had got that fight started the night 1-0. Statistically, it only took Mario six total strikes and significant strikes with two takedowns and a submission attempt compared to Brian's two total and two significant strikes. Mario is now on a two-fight winning streak, both of them coming in 2022. He is 4-2 in the UFC, and Brian is on a two-fight losing streak. He is 1-3 in 2022. So this is his fourth, foul, fourth bout halfway through the year. He likes to stay active. Um, so what's next for these guys? I'd love to see Mario take on Cody Stamen, who just got a victory recently, or Chris Gutierrez. And for Brian, I think he could take on Raulian uh, Paiva, who just fought, took a loss, will break that down, is on a little bit of a losing streak himself. That would be a fun fight. He likes the young guys, so here you go. And then in the prelims, we had Sergey Morozov with a unanimous decision over Raulian Paiva. And uh, as expected, this was a very even matchup. It was a close fight through all three rounds. Paiva really started the fight out with some big shots. I mean, he got a little reckless in there. He was wobbling Sergey, and you could tell he wanted the finish. He wanted that momentum after the Shukashan knockout. Now, Sergey was somehow able to shake it off and look like he was completely back in, you know, in, in his conscience. Faster than you could imagine. He was, he was bouncing around looking good. He's a tough son of a bitch. And he even landed some of his own shots towards the end of round one. But in round two, Morozov went to his Honeywell. He got a takedown early and was able just to put his weight on Paiva, grind him out a little bit. Paiva somehow getting on his feet after being held down for a while. Uh, about a minute left in round two, was able to try to get a guillotine attempt, but nothing had come from that. And then um, Morozov went right back to the wrestling well in round three. Paiva was impressive to get up quickly, get away again. That's not easy when you're getting taken down and having someone have control time the way this fight had un unfolded. But I believed it gassed him out. I think it was 1-1 going into round three. But Morozov was just a little bit more active in round three. I thought that allowed him to get the finish, even though Paiva finished the round pretty well. So it was, you know, it could have gone back and forth, but I don't, um, I'm not surprised about Morozov getting the unanimous decision. I'm not upset with it, uh, but I started my night one and one, and I was trying to get house money for Vegas on a parlay, and most of them got busted with this fight. Statistically, Sergey landed 82 total and 68 significant strikes with two takedowns, compared to Paiva's 63 total and significant and a takedown of his own at the end of the fight. Paiva now starts a two-fight losing streak after an impressive three-fight winning streak um, and, and the move up from flyweight to bantamweight. Sergey starts a new winning streak and is 2-1 in the last 12 months. So I'd like to see Sergey take on Julio Arce 
while Paiva could take on Brian Kelleher or Alejandro Perez. And then City Kickboxing starting its Vegas week pretty pretty much flawless as Carlos Olberg gets the first round knockout over Tafan Nishukwu. And uh, this one didn't last very long. The big boys were, were kind of circling, circling around, filling each other out. And then Carlos landed a massive, almost appeared to be a left jab, but almost kind of came in like a hook. And then followed it up with some heavy combination uh, punches to get the finish. It only took 15 total and significant strikes with that knockdown for Carlos. And Tafan had three total and significant strikes before the knockout. Carlos now is on a two-fight winning streak, both of those coming in 2022. He's 3-2 in the UFC. And Tafan is on a two-fight losing streak, both of them in 2022. And he is 3-3 in the UFC. I'd like to see Carlos take on Ed Herman. I think that's the match to make. And Tafan could take on Alex Kamor in his next bout. Which this set us up for the main card, and what a fight this was. We had Chris Action Man Curtis with a unanimous decision over Rodolfo Vieira. And this was all about Rodolfo looking to take Chris down, as you'd expect. Right? Rodolfo is a jiu-jitsu legend, one of the best in the sport, as we broke down last week. And he wanted to get the jiu-jitsu going. But Chris kept shutting down the countering, uh, kept shutting down the takedowns and was countering with some massive, massive body shots uh, that really paid off as the fight had progressed. Now, there was some good striking exchanges, and both fighters were completely gassed out in round three. But statistically, uh, Chris landed 128 total and 109 significant strikes, compared to Rodolfo's 90 total and 86 significant strikes. And some people could say, uh, you know, it could have went either way. I thought this was definitely going to Action Man's uh, um, decision, especially because Rodolfo was 0 for 20 in his takedown attempts, which is some next level takedown defense by Chris Curtis. I mean, holy smokes. Um, I don't know how amazing um, Rodolfo's takedowns are, but still some of those got pretty deep. Curtis was able to shed them off get the jobs done, get those body attacks to open up some big shots. Now, Chris is on a very impressive eight-fight winning streak after getting cut from the UFC, almost retiring. He's been a great story. He's 3-0 in his uh, return from the UFC against very good competition, some young guys as well, while Rodolfo starts a new losing streak, and he is 3-2 in the UFC. I'd like to see Curtis uh, fight a gentleman that was previously booked in a different promotion, and that would be Nasor Dean Amavov. I think that would be the match to make. And Rodolfo versus Kyle Dacus, that seems like it makes sense. Now, when you see a Nurmagomedov on the card, you usually expect a good performance, especially Umar Nurmagomedov, who had the unanimous decision over Nate Maness. And if you could guess what the game plan was for Umar, you were right, right? Umar getting the takedown and smothering Nate just like Khabib did for years and years in the UFC throughout three rounds. He landed some pretty big front kicks pretty much on the job, Nate. Uh, wasn't able to get the finish. And honestly, props to Nate for being able to hang in there after getting takedown, getting smothered, getting up, getting a front kick to the face, getting takedown, getting smothered, front kick to the face. I mean, he didn't have any quit with him. 
uh, quit in him. Um, but he didn't really do a lot when he was standing. He didn't look to go for a knockout. He didn't look to go for the finish, which is a little bit shocking in my opinion. Statistically, Umar landed 128 total and 74 significant strikes with three takedowns compared to Nate's 46 total and two significant strikes. Now, Umar, he's undefeated, as you all know. He's 2-0 this year in 2022. He now enters the rankings at number 15 in bantamweight. While Nate starts his four-fight winning or has his four-fight winning streak come to an end, and he does start a new losing streak, he is three and one in the UFC. So next, I would love to see Umar jump up the ladder a little bit, maybe take on Frankie Edgar, who's a good wrestler, or the winner winner of Ricky Simone and Jack Shore. That would be fun. The bantamweight division is deep as ever and interesting as ever. Umar is an interesting mix into the fold, now entering the rankings. Um, while for Nate, I could see Trevin Jones. That would be a fun banger. Uh, both guys durable with some knockout power. I picked Umar in that fight, picked Chris, so things were looking good. And then we had Tiago Moises with a first-round submission via rear naked choke over Christos Giagos, and this was a performance of the night. Um, this was all about Tiago letting his hands go to find an opening. Sometimes he gets a little patient, waits a little too long, goes for the takedown, tire himself, tires himself out to get it, but he, he threw some shots, got the takedown early, got Christos's back, and while um, Giagos was still standing, locked in a little bit of a body triangle, got that rear naked choke, and he tapped out while standing. Now, this one was pretty early, so Christos landed only 13 total and two significant strikes, while Tiago landed seven total, three significant, a takedown, and that submission attempt. Now, Tiago starts a new winning streak after two tough losses, while Christos is now on a two-fight losing streak. I could see Tiago taking on Gregor Gillespie, who's been, you know, not very active, or maybe Grant Dawson, who's a tough son of a gun. And then um, I know he called, called out Joe Selecki. I mean, that would be a fight that I don't think fight fans would be upset about. And then for Christos, I could see Alan Patrick. Um, I think that fight makes sense. And how about this fucking fight? Shavat Rachmanov with a second round submission via guillotine choke over Neil Magny, the performance of the night. And I mean, Rachmanov, a guy who's undefeated, uh, this is... Very, very impressive. I, I just, I don't know. I didn't think he could handle the pressure and the, the durability of Neil with the experience he had, but it didn't really take him that long. Obviously, only in the second round. He even said he was a little shocked that Neil had tapped. Um, but this was a, a standout performance. I think Rachmanov is going to be one of the guys that nobody wants to fuck, fuck with. And he almost kind of reminds me of where Kamzat Chemaev is. He just doesn't have... The hype and he's a little bit more soft-spoken but he is the real fucking deal um statistically he landed 56 total and 19 significant strikes with two takedowns and a submission attempt compared to neil's 21 total and 11 significant strikes now neil starts a new losing streak and he is one and one this year he moves down two spots in the rankings to number 12 while shavat stays undefeated he's 4-0 in the ufc and he moves up five spots to number 10. 
which is a very impressive thing. Four fights in the UFC now. He's number 10 in a very deep weight class. I would love to see him take on undefeated Sean Brady. That's the fight for me to make. And for Neil, how about Michelle Pieta, um, a wild man. Those two styles must see TV. Dana White, Sean Shelby, let's make it happen. And then we had the main event. And what a fucking fight this was, as expected. Arman Sukarian with a, or uh, excuse me, Matush Gamra with a unanimous decision over Arman Suarkian. And this was a fi- the fight of the night. I mean, this was controversial. It was close. Both these guys in their grappling and stri- striking, clearly very high level, very evenly competitive. But it honestly, to me, is crazy how impressive Armin is at 25 years old. And that's why I picked him. Now, I thought Armin round one, round one with his striking. He was able to avoid Gamrot's best attempt at a takedown. He had it very high. Armin had very impressive balance to avoid the takedown. And then in round two, he outstruck uh, Matush again. He had some massive kicks to the legs, to the body. And it looked like this was going to go Armin's way. Well, round three, things changed a little bit. Round three, Gamrot got a takedown. Even though he didn't do a lot with it, he did have control. So I ended up giving him round three with pretty even amount of strikes landed there. Even though Armin did finish the round with some big strikes, I just don't think he won the full round, right? It's not about who finishes the last 10 seconds. It's about who wins the round. Now, round four was crazy. Armin came out early. He got a knockdown, but Gamrat got a take. Gamrat found a way to get a takedown. He had control the rest of the round, and I think he stole round four, which was the huge difference in the in the decision. And I think a lot of people might think because Armand got the knockdown that he should have won the round. But even in my opinion, I'm giving that to Gamrat. Um, the pace both fighters had throughout a five-round fight with takedowns, takedown defenses, big shots, combinations, moving forward, insane. But round five, Gamrot came out, went to the wrestling department. He kind of out-cardioed Armin. I feel like Armin you know, wasn't quite in the same five-round shape as Gamrot. And when he did get taken down, it just wore on him. And I thought Gamrot got rounds three through five. So I, I'm not too, too shocked with this uh, unanimous decision, but I think it could have went both ways. Statistically, Armin landed 110 total and 95 significant strikes with a takedown and a knockdown compared to Matush's 108 total and 81 significant strikes. But he did have six takedowns, although in 21 attempts. Um, so statistically pretty even there as well. If you score the knockdown more, but it's a round by round scoring, it's not a statistical scoring decision. Now Armin has his five fight winning streak come to an end. He does start a new losing streak and stays at number 11 in the rankings. While Matush is on a four fight winning streak, he is four and one in the UFC and he moves up four spots in the rankings to number eight. Now, um, how about, Gamrot versus Benil Dariush. Whew, that would be fun. He called out Justin Gaethje. I don't know if Justin Gaethje is going to give him that fight, and I honestly don't think, I don't know. Him and Benil both are really next level, but those will be fun to test um, Gamrot to see how, how, how far he can go. And then Ger- how about um, Armin versus Garam Kutataladze, who just took a loss 
both fighters very high level, that would be bonkers, and I'm all for it. But let's talk UFC 276. Again, I'll be there. Dirty 30. Can't wait. Um, it's going to be a good time. And this is a stacked, I mean fucking stacked card. So let's dive in. Again, the early prelims, they'll be on UFC Fight Pass. It's a 3 p.m. Pacific start. But the prelims will be on ESPN and ABC starting at 5 p.m. Pacific with the main card starting at 7 p.m. Pacific on the pay-per-view. Now, early prelims. This fight did get moved because of some things happening. Uh, it got moved to the regular prelims, not the early prelims. But still, the fact that these two who uh, are, are fighting in the prelims and Brad, who is a UFC veteran, who is ranked, is pretty shocking to me. Fucking bees, I can't get stung on camera here. But we have Brad Tavares, 34 years old with a 19-7 and record and the number 12 next to his name, taking on uh, Dricus Stilnox Duplessis, who's 28 years old with a 16-2 and record. Now, the fact that this fight is early in the prelims and has a ranked fighter shows you how fucking deep and insane this card is. I think this is a coin flip fight which, you know, according to Vegas odds is right there as well. I think it's minus 105, minus 115. But Brad isn't even in his prime. And or Brad is in his prime. And Dracus is a young stud that is going to make waves in this middleweight division. I think this is a huge fight for Brad if he wants to stay in the rankings and continue to climb them at 34 years old. But when we look at it, Brad trains out of extreme couture. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He has the second most wins in UFC middleweight history. He's on a two-fight winning streak, and three of his six losses are via knockout. While Dracus, he is on a four-fight winning streak. He is 2-0 in the UFC, and seven of his 16 wins are via knockout, and nine of them via submission. Now, Brad is very tough and durable. He has good wrestling, but I believe Dracus is just going to be a force. I think he's going to find the chin of Brad. I'm taking um, De Plusse. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that birthday bread. Let's go. Let's start the 30s off right. And then we have Macy, the future barber, 24 years old with a 10-2 and record and the number 13 next to her name, taking on Jessica Evil. I, 35 years old with a 15 and 10 record and the number 10 next to her name. Again, another early prelim fight that is going to make sure I'm at T-Mobile early in my seats. Best believe it. I mean, sheesh. This is an OG vet fighting for her life in the UFC while Macy is a very young prospect on a roll. Jessica trains out of Extreme Couture MMA. She's a Bellator alum. She's on a three-fight losing streak and hasn't won since December of 2019. Macy, she has a karate background with a second-degree black belt. She trains at a Team Alpha Male. She's a purple belt in BJJ. She's an LFA and Dana White Contender Series alum. She's on a two-fight winning streak, and five of her ten wins are via knockout. 
She has the second most knockout wins in UFC flyweight history. And I just don't see how I is going to be able to strike with Barbara at this stage in her career. She is going to probably attempt a wrestler, tire her out a little bit. But Barbara has a pretty solid ground game and is pretty big for the division. So I'm going to take the young prospect. I'm taking the future. We're putting her on that parlay. We're marking her down. And we're getting this bread. Moving on. We have Uriah Primetime Hall. 37 years old with an 18 and 10 record and the number nine next to his name. Taking on Andre Sergipano Muniz, 32 years old with a 22 and four record and the number 13 next to his name. Now, another really interesting fight. Ranked fighters, early prelims. Do you see what I mean? Potentially one of the best cards ever. I mean, fuck, man. I mean... We got the highlight reel veteran, which is Uriah Hall, looking to f finish his career with momentum after losing to Sean Strickland. And Andre, he's on a big run, but he's facing his stiffest test yet, in my opinion. Uriah, he's a second degree black belt in Kaioshin Karate. He's a blue belt in BJJ. He's an ultimate fighter and uh, Bellator alum. He is on a one fight losing streak. 13 of his 17 wins are via knockout. Four of his 10 losses are via knockout. He's tied for the most knockout victories in the middleweight division with eight. And he was the ring of um, combat champion uh, in his prior, uh, prior promotion. Andre is a southpaw fighter. He's a third degree black belt in BJJ. The real fucking deal. He's a dark blue Prajid in Muay Thai. He's also, or he is a Dana White Contender Series alum. He got submission of the year against Ronaldo Souza last year in 2021. He's on an eight-fight winning streak. He's 5-0 in the UFC. 15 of his 22 wins are via submission. Again, BJJ is the real deal. And four of his four losses are via knockout. Now, uh, Muniz is a big-time threat on the ground. But I think Uriah has really good wrestling. I think he has good defense, so I don't know how he's going to get him there. I believe he's the better striker. I think Uriah is going to have a patient game plan. He's going to pick at Andre. He's going to use the distance to his advantage, and he's going to find a way to victory. Uriah is an underdog here. I am putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Let's start 30 off right. And then in the prelims, we had another fight that uh, got adjusted, but one that I'm fired up for, man. We got Jim A-10 Miller, 38 years old with a 34-16 and 16 record, taking on Donald Cowboy Cerrone, 39 years old with a 36-16 and 16 record. Again, no Bobby Green. I love watching Bobby Green. No disrespect to him. This is a fucking treat here. We get a true vet showdown. We get the rematch from 2014, which Cowboy won via knockout in the second round. But I like what Jim Miller's done lately. Cowboy, we've broke him down a couple times, but we'll go again. He's a legend with records for days. He was supposed to fight Joe Lozon, 
It got rebooked, didn't happen. So here he is for the third time in a short amount of time expecting to fight. He trains out of his own BMF ranch. He has a black belt in BJJ and a black belt in Gado Jitsu. He is a guy that came from the WEC promotion. He is tied for the most wins in UFC history. He has the third most bouts in UFC history, the second most finishes. He's tied for the most post-fight bonus awards. He has the most knockdowns in UFC history. Uh, he had the 2009 fight of the year. He's obviously uh, on the latter half of his career and on a five-fight losing streak with a no contest mixed in there. He hasn't won since May of 2019. 17 of his 36 wins are via submission. Eight of his 16 losses are via knockout. He has a brown belt in BJJ. He was the Ring of Combat Bantamweight Champion. He's coming off a loss and is already 1-1 one one this year in 2022. That can't be right. He didn't win. He's on a, a losing streak, so pardon my mistake. Um, 10 of his 24 wins are via submission, and 7 of his 13 losses are also via submission. Now, Jim... He has backgrounds in wrestling, BJJ, and Muay Thai. He trains out of his own Miller's Brothers MMA. He's a black belt in BJJ. He was a D1 wrestler at Virginia Tech. He is tied for the most wins in UFC history at 23. Cowboy and Arlovsky are tied with him. He has the most bouts in UFC history with 39. He's got the most finishes with 14. The most bouts with 37, the most wins with 21, and UFC lightweight division history. He's got the second most submission wins in UFC lightweight division history with nine. He's got fight of the year in 2012 against Joe Lozon. He's got the most fight time in UFC lightweight division history with over six hours of ring time. He's a kickboxing academy champion, a cage fairy champion, He's on a two-fight winning streak, and 18 of his 34 wins are via submission. Now, this is going to be an interesting one, but I've liked what I've seen from Jim lately, and now that he has his Lyme's disease under control, which I think has been huge for him, um, I'm going to go with Jim. You know, Cowboy, he just hasn't looked good in there. He's fought stiff competition, but he's older. I believe he's taken more damage. He just got done finishing... Uh, filming a movie and you know Jim would love to pass Cowboy and wins and get revenge from their matchup in 2014 so I'm going to take a 10 Miller I'm putting them on my parlay we marking that ish down and we getting that bread moving on we got Ian the future Gary 24 years old with a 9-0 record taking on Gabriel gifted green 29 years old with an 11 and 3 record. We get another step up in competition for Ian, who has McGregor like ambitions coming from Ireland. Uh, but I think this is going to be a stiff test. I think it's going to be a fun back and forth affair through three rounds. And when we look at it, Ian trains out of Sanford MMA. Five of his nine wins are via knockout. He is 2 0 in the UFC, he's a Cage Warriors alum while Gabriel is a purple belt in BJJ. He's a Bellator alum. He is a California Extreme Champion. 
Six of his 11 wins are via submission and four via knockout. Two of his three losses are via knockout. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Now, I've gone back and forth in this one, but I believe Ian training out of Sanford at MMA just has really probably helped mold him and gotten better year over year. I bet against Ian in his UFC debut, and I'm not going to do that this time. I'm taking Ian. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on. We got Robbie Ruthless Lawler, 40 years old with a 29-15 and 15 record, taking on Brian Bam Bam Barbarina, who's 33 years old with a 17-8 and 8 record. And this has actually been moved to the main card with the Misha Tate bout getting pulled. Now, when, these, when this fight got added to UFC 276, I think it was one of the later ones, I was fired up. I mean, these are two guys that love to brawl. They have nothing to lose here. Robbie's getting you know close to the end of his career, especially at 40 years old. And Brian just got a new contract. Robbie trains out of Sanford MMA. He's a Pride Elite XC uh, and Strikeforce alum. He was a, a former champ at Elite XC. He's also a former UFC champion and had two successful title defenses. He was fighter of the year in 2014 and 2015. He had the 2010 knockout of the year. He was the 2013 comeback fighter of the year. He had fight of the year in 2014, 15, and 16. 21 of his 29 wins are via knockout. And he's on a one-fight winning streak after a four-fight losing streak. But everyone loves to see ruthless Robbie Lawler in the octagon. I mean, all those fight of the years, knockout of the years, and what Brian Barbarena just did with Matt Brown. You best believe we ready for that shit. And I can't wait. Now, Brian, he's a blue belt in BJJ. He's on a two-fight winning streak. He's had fight of the night in two of his last three fights. And 10 of his 17 wins are via knockout. I'd say this is worthy of getting moved to the main card. Now, as much as Lawler has accomplished in the UFC, I just don't think he's going to be able to put Brian away. He's too durable. He's too tough. And I believe Brian has a better pace throughout three rounds in their age. Um, you know, Brian's in his fighting prime. Robbie's 40. Because of that, I'm taking Brian. I believe he's an underdog. I'm putting them on that parlay. We marking that ish down and we getting that bread. We're taking some dogs. We getting some money. Ho, ho, ho. Moving on. The prelim headliner and what a fucking fight this is as well, man. I mean, these fights are insane. We got Brad Quake Riddell with a or 30 years old with a 10 and 2 record and the number 14 next to his name taking on Jalen Tarantula Turner, 27 years old with a 12 and five record. Now this is another really fun fight. I was stoked to see this get on the card and it's only the prelim headliner. Now city kickboxing gets to start their night at UFC 276 after already last Saturday, having Olberg with a nice knockout and the, and the win at the apex last weekend. Both fighters really here need a win especially if they want to stay in the top half of the stacked lightweight rankings, in my opinion, the toughest division in the UFC. 
So Brad, obviously a kickboxing background and trains out of city kickboxing. He's got a purple belt in BJJ. He's coming off a loss to Rafael Faziv, but he was on an impressive seven-fight winning streak. And five of his ten wins are via knockout. Jalen, he's a Bellator World Series of Fighting and Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He's 6-2 and two in the UFC. Nine of his 12 wins are via knockout. Three of his five losses are via knockout. And he has a six-inch reach advantage. Now, I'd be surprised if this fight lasted three rounds. But I like the experience and well-roundedness of Riddell. He's around good training partners, good coaching. I do think he's going to have a tough time with Jalen's reach, the tarantula. But I think he'll be well prepared. I think he's going to look to wrestler. I'm take to wrestle. I'm going to take Riddell. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Now the main card, the show we've all been waiting for. 406. We got Sean Sugar O'Malley, 27 years old, with a 15 and one record and the number 13 next to his name, taking on Pedro, the young Punisher Munoz, 35 years old with a 19-7 and record, and the number 9 next to his name. We finally get to see Sugar Show with a big-time opponent. This is the stiffest test yet to open the main card. It's going to be interesting as Pedro likes to come at you, push you against the cage, wrestle you. He has good BJJ if he takes you down and he likes to make his fights dirty. He has good leg kicks as well, which has been a, an issue for Sean. But O'Malley has a massive reach. He's the faster, quicker fighter. He doesn't have a lot of damage taken against him. But this is going to be fun, especially as Pedro has never been finished inside the octagon. When we look at it, Pedro, he trains out of ATT. He's a black belt in BJJ, a brown belt in Judo, He's tied for the most bouts in UFC bantamweight rankings and the most bouts in the UFC bantamweight division. He's an RFA alum and a prior champion of RFA. He's on a two-fight losing streak. Eight of his 19 wins are via submission. Sean, he trains out of the MMA lab. He's a brown belt in BJJ. He's an LFA and Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a three-fight winning streak, undefeated in my book. We don't need to talk about the Cheeto fight again. There'll be a rematch. They'll get it settled. He'll always have a one on his record, but in my mind, he's still undefeated. 11 of his 15 wins are via knockout, and he does have a seven-and-a-half-inch reach advantage. Now, everyone says to beat the O'Malley, kick Sean, pressure him, take him down but no one's really done it very effectively or at a high clip. I think we might finally get to see Sean's jiu-jitsu here, see it in action, but I think he uses his kicks and length uh, to his advantage as he always does. He's going to keep a lot of movement going. I think he's going to outlast Pedro. I'm taking O'Malley. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking him down, and we getting that bread. And then we have Sean Strickland. 31 years old with a 25 and 3 record and the number 4 next to his name taking on Alex Poton Pieta 34 years old with a 5 and 1 record 
This is going to be a high-class fight. Both fighters in their prime and both fighters looking for a title shot and getting the winner of Izzy and Cannoneer in the main event. Now, Alex, he's got a kickboxing background, but this is a massive leap in competition for him in the UFC. Sean has good defense. He's durable. He's got a good jab. He can get reckless. It's going to be fun. Now, Sean trains at a syndicate MMA. He's a brown belt in BJJ. He's a King of the Cage alum and champion. He was the comeback fighter of the year in 2020. He's on a six-fight winning streak. Ten of his 25 wins are via knockout. And he has fought in five-round fights, so I, I believe he's going to have cardio that's going to push Alex that Alex hasn't had to deal with before. Now, Alex, he's an orthodox fighter. He has a kickboxing and boxing background. He trains at a Teixeira MMA and fitness with Glover Teixeira. He was a or he has a black belt in kickboxing. He's an LFA alum as well. He was a Glory in kickboxing world champion. He's known for knocking out Izzy in kickboxing and is Izzy's kryptonite. The UFC is building this up. They have him on the same card. So if Pierre wins, he gets Izzy. If Izzy wins, that's what they want. That's the selling card or the selling fight. Um, Alex is on a five-fight winning streak. He's 2-0 in the UFC. Four of his five wins are via knockout. And he does have a three-inch reach advantage. I know Glover feels like Alex is ready for the big dogs, but I'm not too sure. Sean is well-rounded. He's got good defense. I think he's able to edge a decision here, and he's going to play it smart to earn the title shot. I'm taking Strickland. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Then the co-main. The fact that this is a co-main just shows you how fucking good the main event is. We get Max Blessed Holloway. 30 years old with a 23-6 and six record and the number one next to his name, taking on Alexander the Great Volkanovsky, 33 years old with a 24-1 and one record. And the storyline for me here, I thought Max won the second fight. Apparently others did as well, or they want to do the trilogy. It's as simple as that. If a fighter confidently won the first two bouts, I just don't think I've ever seen that. Now, Max and Volk have really appeared to level up since our last fight, though. Max looked like a fucking Super Saiyan in DM, uh, DBZ versus Calvin Cater. And he's legit. We've seen that. And Volk embarrassed the Korean Zombie. I mean, just embarrassed him. Although, you know, the Korean Zombie is closer to retirement. I don't think it's quite the same level. But both fighters look to have leveled up. Looking the best they've ever looked in their fighting primes. Now, Max, he's a brown belt in BJJ. He's had three successful title defenses as champion. He's tied for the third longest winning streak in UFC history with 13 wins. That ties John Jones, Demetrius Johnson, GSP, and Khabib. I mean, look at the names that he's in with. I mean, Max is the fucking truth. He's got the second most fights in UFC featherweight division history with 23. He's got the most wins in UFC featherweight division history with 18. He's got the most knockouts and TKO wins in UFC featherweight history with 10. He's tied for the most fight night bonuses in featherweight history with 9, tied with Cub Swanson. He's got the most significant strikes landed in a fight with over 445. 
and the most overall strikes with 2,848 in the fight against Calvin Cater. He's got the most total fight time in featherweight history with uh, over 5 hours and 47 minutes of octagon time. He's got the most total strikes landed in UFC history with over 3,056. He was the 2017 Fighter of the Year. 10 of his 23 wins are via knockout. He's on a two-fight winning streak after back-to-back -back defeats against Volkanovski. Alex, he's a former rugby player. He trains at a city kickboxing, which is a mix of city kickboxing and the freestyle gym. He's a black belt in BJJ. He's also had three successful title defenses at featherweight. He's the 2019 Breakout Fighter of the Year. He was the 2021 Fighter. Uh, he had the 2021 Fight of the Year against Brian Ortega. He's on a 21 fight winning streak. 12 of his 24 wins are via knockout. He has a two and a half inch reach advantage, which is kind of wild to think because he's shorter. I really think that Max, being a little bit younger, having time to digest those losses with two more fights, is going to make a big difference here. Volk has been able to train with Izzy now that City is mixed with Freestyle. So there's a lot of fun storylines in the trilogy here. It's going to be as close as the other fights in my opinion. But I'm going to go with Max. It feels right. I feel like he's going to have the slight advantage. I'm putting him on my parlay. I'm hammering Max in fucking Vegas. We put him in that parlay and we get in that bread. Then the main event. The fact I get to see Max, my favorite fighter, him and Sean, my favorite fighters in the UFC, and potentially one of the GOATs when it's said and done in Izzy. I mean, blessed. I'm fucking blessed. 30's blessed. Let's fucking go. We get Israel, the last style bender, Adesanya, 32 years old, 22-1 record, taking on Jared, the killer gorilla, cannoneer, 38 years old with a 15-5 and five record and the number two next to his name. I want to say it right. Israel Adesanya. I was a little too extravagant there. Adesanya. Now, this is going to be fucking nutty, man. I have one of those stomach feelings. I saw Pena beat Nunez in an impossible feat the last card I went to this year with my best friend. And I feel like this one has a real chance to go that way. I didn't feel that way about the Pena fight, but I just have a feeling on this one. Izzy is the style bender. I mean, he's clean with it. He seems unbeatable at middleweight, but Jared's a former heavyweight with real fucking power. Um, if it lands, he could finish anyone. Jared's going to stick to his game plan. He's going to come out and pressure Izzy. He's going to get in his face, and he's going to let look to not let Izzy get comfortable. When we look at it, Jared is an orthodox fighter. He trains out of the MMA lab. He has a purple belt in BJJ. 10 of his 15 wins are via knockout. Two of his five losses are also via knockout. And he's on a two-fight winning streak with his last loss coming to Robert Whitaker, who Izzy has beaten twice. Israel, he's, a kickbox he's got a kickboxing and boxing background. He is a purple belt in BJJ. He was a kickboxing champion. He has four successful title defenses. He has the most knockdowns in a UFC title fight with four. He's got the second longest winning streak in UFC middleweight division history with 11. He was the 2018 Breakthrough Fighter of the Year. 
He had the 2019 fight of the year against Kelvin Gastelum. He is on a two-fight winning streak, but was at light heavyweight um, when he lost. Or else he'd be on that, that massive winning streak. 15 of his 22 wins are via knockout. And although I have the weird feeling, I think Izzy, kind of like Strickland, he understands how dangerous Jared is. He's not going to fight. He's going to fight for the victory. And I don't think he's necessarily going to fight aggressively. I think Jared's going to make him have to fight. It's not going to be a Yoel Romero situation. But I don't think he puts himself in danger. I'm taking the last style bender. We putting him on our parlay. We marking it down. And we getting that bread. Holy fuck. What a card. I got the chills. I can't wait to fly to Vegas and see this shit go down. Um, I'll try to, to post on some socials. Share some experiences. But you guys will see me on episode 90 right here after the 4th of July. Next weekend, we get a somewhat decent UFC fight night card. This is headlined by Rafael Dos Anjos and Rafael Faziv. The Battle of Rafaels. This is a UFC Apex one again, sadly. It's got a 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific main card start. But that main event's going to be fun. But we're going to switch gears into the NBA. The Golden State Warriors are the NBA champion. Steph Curry, um, NBA final MVP again. We don't need to talk more about that, but there's been a lot going on in the offseason as every year. That's what's typical. Before the draft, we had Danny Green and the 23rd pick in the draft traded to the Memphis Grizzlies for DeAnthony Melton. I mean, DeAnthony Milton is a great piece for the Sixers. The Knicks trade Kemba Walker to the Pistons, which makes you think, well, they have these guards. Why would the Pistons want them? Supposedly, they're going to cut them loose. The Pistons uh, sent Jeremy Grant to the Portland Blazers for the 2025 first-round pick. The Hornets hire Steve Clifford after Kenny Atkinson tells him to suck it. <laughs> um, Shaq's son to join the Lakers for Summer League. And in devastating news, I mean... It's just, you hate to see things like this. But Caleb Swanigan, the Purdue legend, ex-Blazer, passing away at only 25 years old. I mean, I couldn't only imagine. Um, prayers to, to Swanigan and his family. Rest in peace. And I hope, you know, they get through it, as I'm sure they will. In other NBA news, Russell Westbrook decides to opt into his $47 million contract to stay with the Lakers. There was rumor that Kyrie Irving might try to go and team up with LeBron again. It's still possible, but not looking likely as Kyrie Irving opts into his $37 million deal with the Nets. John Wall buys it, gets a buyout with the Rockets and is expected to sign with the LA Clippers. Which, to be honest, John Wall, PG, and Kawhi Leonard sounds like a fun time. I'm going to bring this up because I'm a Jazz fan, but the Jazz signed Johnny Juzang after the draft. The Jazz hire uh, Boston assistant Will Hardy as head coach to make him the youngest coach in the NBA. They also hire former coach Dave Fitzdell to become the associate GM. He's been a coach or assistant for 18 years, and it's expected the Jazz will get rid of their existing staff and let Will Hardy fill in who he would like to. You can see Danny Ainge is working. He's getting a lot of sharp people together to try to turn it around for Utah. The Nuggets signed Villanova great Colin Gillespie. Love to see it, although he was undrafted. 
The Knicks said Nerlens Noel and Alec Burks to the Pistons, which unloads $19 million in salary cap, which is supposedly getting set up for them to sign free agent Jalen Brunson. They're expected to sign him to a four-year, $110 million deal. That's a lot of money for old Jalen. What a what an NBA career he's had for a guy that was just a post-up point guard in college basketball that nobody thought he had a chance. I love me some Jalen Brunson. Avisa Zubak signing a three-year, $33 million extension. Minnesota uh, Timberwolves extends Torian Prince, two-year, $16 million. And then Denver sends Monte Morris and Will Barton to Washington for KCP and Ish Smith. I'm not too sure what I think about that or if, you know, that's more uh, or sending setting them up for more moves to come. But as we've been on here, I've been seeing things go like crazy. And I think we have some some fresh news here in the NBA. Here we go. Steph Curry set to host the ESPYs. That's going to be fun. Steph Curry's got his comical mini golf show and everything else. James Harden opts out of his player option for $47.3 million, uh, reportedly going to sign a short-term deal with Philly. What else do we got here? We got a bunch of shit just trying to get the clearest stuff here. Bradley Bill declines his $36.4 million option. He could sign a four-year deal with a an option for this fifth year. So he's trying to get the super max. And then the Hawks are trading Danilo Gallinari and multiple first round picks to the Spurs for all-star guard DeJounte Murray. Um, I'm assuming that means that uh, Popovich isn't coming back because he created DeJounte Murray to be a, quite the NBA player. That's a little bit of a shocker to me that they wanted to do that, but maybe they're setting up the next coach for success. But the um, Hawks getting a steal with DeJounte Murray, him and Ice Trey, that's going to be interesting. Let's quickly review some of uh, what had happened and went down in the NBA draft. I thought Paolo Bantero should have been the first pick. It didn't seem like that was going to be the case from all the analysts. But the Magic went and drafted Paolo in the first pick. Uh, he's a, a local Seattle kid, so I love to see him doing those things. You know, living in Seattle, there's quite the hoop scene there, and you love to see it. Interesting, the Magic have quite a, a young little core. Speaking of young core, the Thunder draft Chet Holmgren second overall. You know, he's just so cocky. I don't know. I feel like he came from a pretty easy upbringing. He's got the length. He's got the skill. I, I just I can't buy into him as, as a person. Um, so I kind of hope he, he, he turns out to be a bust. But everyone talks about him potentially being Giannis or better. The Rockets draft the supposed first number one overall pick, Jabari Smith. They're going to have quite the young core as well. The Kings drafted Keegan Murray. I, I'm not as big on Keegan Murray, and the Kings usually um, tank in the top five picks, so wouldn't be shocked there. I thought they would have, take, have taken Jaden Ivey, who the Pistons got. They now have Cade Cunningham. Jaden Ivey. We'll see what they can do with that. That's a lot of talent. Jaden Ivey with a um, golly, who am I thinking of? Um, uh, John Morant like ceiling, in my opinion. The Pacers draft Benedict Mathurin. I thought that was a good fit. The Blazers get Shaden Sharp. 
The Pelicans took Dyson Daniels from the G League and uh, Ignite. Don't know a ton about him, but a lot of those G League guys have turned out pretty good. The Spurs drafted Jeremy Sokan out of Baylor. Liked that fit. The Wizards getting Johnny Davis. I think he's going to be a killer, but he's going to play for the Wizards. But him and Bradley Bill could be interesting. The Knicks got Ousmane Dang, who has traded to OKC. And they're making fun of the Slim Towers with him and Chet Holmgren. The Thunder also got Jalen Williams. The Hornets drafted Jalen Duran, uh, who was traded to Detroit in a three-team deal. The Cavs got Okaya Baji. Will be interesting to see how he does in the land. The Hornets got Mark Williams to give them a big, uh, you know, a potential big guy because they're lacking that. The Hawks got AJ Griffin from Duke. Another Seattle local, the Rockets drafting. Tari Eason out of LSU. They have a lot of Seattle guys. Uh, it's going to be fun. I kind of wish Paolo had gotten drafted third overall because they would have had a lot of Seattle guys, a lot of guys familiar with each other. Could have been fun to see, but good pick by the Rockets. I'm surprised Tari slipped that far. The Bull, He's just a certified scorer. The Bulls got Dalen Terry out of Arizona. The Timberwolves drafted Jake LaRavia but was traded to Memphis. The Spurs drafted Malachi Branham, another certified scorer, a very young talent. Um, potentially could fill the shoes for the lack of scoring of DeJounte Murray. The Nuggets took Christian Braun from Kansas. The Grizzlies got Walker Kessler from Auburn and traded him to the Timberwolves. The Sixers drafted David Roddy and traded him to Memphis. The Bucks got Marjan Bouchamp, another G League Ignite player. The Spurs got Blake Wesley. The Mavericks got Wendell Moore Jr., but traded him to the Timberwolves. The Heat drafted Nikola Jovic. The Warriors got Patrick Baldwin Jr. The Grizzlies got Ty Ty Washington Jr., but traded him to the Rockets. Another late-round talent that I like, the, the Houston Rockets getting a lot of certified scores. I don't know who's going to play defense, but a lot of scorers. And then the Thunder drafted Peyton Watson, Watson, but traded him to the Nuggets. We won't go through the complete second round, but I did like the Pacers' first second round pick of Andrew Nemhard out of Gonzaga. I also liked the Pelicans getting EJ Liddell out of Ohio State. A guy that has quite a bit of experience could help them pretty much immediately. He's the best version of himself. I also liked the... Celtics drafting J.D. Davison from Alabama. And then the, a lot of the other results were the guys that were getting signed, like the Jazz getting Johnny Juzang, the Nuggets getting Colin Gillespie. But the NBA offseason's crazy. I mean, we can expect a lot more. There's still a lot of big names that haven't been traded that we expect to. What's going to happen with DeAndre Ayton, Rudy Gobert, uh, John Collins still? Lots to be done. So stay tuned because we'll be talking about it here on Business and Buckets. Talking about Business and Buckets, baby. We got the Avs represented. NHL champion Colorado Avalanche. Does that sound good? Boy, yeah. When they won, I was a baby infant, not a hockey fan yet, so I couldn't say I was a part of it. But golly, does it feel good to have uh, Nova Scotia local Nathan McKinnon getting the job done, um, passing the torch from former... Uh, my former favorite player, Sid the Kid. You love to see it. And how about Kel McCarr, man? He won the Norris Trophy. 
Um, he got the uh, NHL MVP, championship MVP, and what a performance he had put on. But we didn't break down the complete series, so we'll start with last Wednesday's game, Game 4. The Avalanche going up 3-1 and a 3-2 overtime. And this game was very controversial because right with the overtime winning goal by Nazem Kadri in his first game back, um, there was too many men on the ice. I don't know hockey well enough to see if it was that big of a deal. Clearly, they were going on the line sub. You know, he was on the ice at, at, with too many men at one point. Um, obviously, Bednar of Colorado said that that's common. That's not a big deal. I can't really give you a, a true, like, that was blatant. They should have called it or not. You'd think in the NHL uh, championship, something like that would be looked upon. But, uh, hey, they, they stole this game. That was a huge moment for them. Uh, Nathan McKinnon scored his 12th playoff goal via power play in the second period. Um, the the Tampa Bay team, you know, they're very experienced. They battled. But it, it's it's very ironic that the bad boy Kadri comes in in his first game back. I think his quote was, I was sick of watching and I wanted to get in on the action. He scores one of the biggest goals of the series, uh, series to, to put them up 3-1. Shots and hits were pretty similar. Face-offs were dead even. Penalty minutes were the same. I mean, that game's about as close as it gets. The ice was yucky in Tampa Bay, but the fact that the Avs were able to steal one on the road, you'd love to see it. That set us up for a game five in Colorado. And you're, you're wondering here, things get interesting because Tampa Bay had won three to two here. Um, Valerie Nushkin kept his, uh, you know, his soon to be big payday going with his ninth playoff goal to tie at one, one in the second Kucherov got his eighth goal via power play to take the lead. Kel McCarr tied it with his eighth playoff goal in the second. Again, that's by a defenseman. That's why he wins all the awards. And then Andrej Palat with his 11th playoff goal to take the victory for Tampa Bay. Colorado outshot Tampa Bay by six. They outhit Tampa by Tampa Bay by 10. They had six less faceoff wins, a lot more penalty minutes. But really, this was the experience of Tampa Bay. They found a way to win in enemy territory. Colorado really wanted to clinch it here. As a fan, I really wanted that. It would have been fun to see in Denver. But I saw a funny tweet setting up for the for the game six in Tampa on Saturday. Colorado had clinched every series on the road. Um, so, you know, I had faith. I was definitely nervous. And this game was as close as it got as well. Steven Stamkos started the game open with his 11th playoff goal, taking Tampa Bay with the lead 1-0. And it was a brutal brutal period by, by the Avs. You know, the ice looked a little messy again. But Nathan McKinnon, of all people, got his 13th playoff goal to tie it up. And Arturi Lenikin got the game-winning goal with 12 minutes left in the second period. And that was that. Colorado outshot Tampa Bay by seven. Everything else was pretty even. But the Avs, uh, you know, both teams battling injuries. Both teams beat up. But the Avs a little bit younger um, although a little less experienced, I think too athletic, too fast, too furious. And now the two-time defending champions um, give up their reign. And we have a potential, not necessarily a dynasty, but a team that nobody wants to fuck with for multiple years. Kel McCarr, Nathan McKinnon, the young core. It's going to be fun to watch. And as an as fan, it's getting, more, getting me more and more into hockey. So I can't wait to see what next year provides. Um, there's some free agents for the Avs. 
But one of my favorite quotes was the captain um, in the post-game uh, interview, post-championship interview, saying, hey, uh, Gabriel Landeskog, what could you say? The NHL is a, a monkey see, monkey do business. You know, it's a copycat league. What do you think a lot of the teams are going to implement into next year? He said, I don't know. Every team needs to find themselves a Kel McCarr. I love that quote because they're not going to find a Kel McCarr. Um, him and Nathan McKinnon are going to be wrecking house for a long time. Let's see what the potential of this Avalanche team can have. But what a fun fucking season. Obviously, as an Avs fan, it's, it's uh, probably one for the record books, in my opinion. But the Avs got it done, baby. The Avs got it done. And all you could think of is all the small things in Denver getting cranked, Blink-182, the, the Stanley Cup um, being held. Carry me home, baby. We're going to Denver. Love to see it. And then wrapping up with some MLB and, NHL, or, and NFL, the Cubs DFA'd uh, longtime veteran Jonathan VR. Austin Hayes hit for a cycle for the Orioles. Big, big moment, the second cycle of the year with Jared Walsh from the, the Angels. Tough news for the Dodgers is reliever Daniel Hudson tears his ACL. Bryce Harper fractures his thumb after already having elbow injury and only playing as a DH. He's undergoing surgery and looking at a six-week timeline for returning. Angels, Angels Mariners with eight games in a week or in like 10 days or some crazy shit like that. Uh, a lot of beef happening. I think it started with a hit in the head with Justin Upton, former Angel. Then a high pitch to Mike Trout. Phil Nevin was, was livid. The Angels came out hot, end up throwing high at Julio Rodriguez, the young rookie, and then end up hitting Jesse Winker. And one of the best brawls in baseball that I've seen from memory went down. There was actual punches throwing. Uh, the Angels closer, Iggy, throwing fucking sunflower seeds at the, at the other team's bench. But my favorite was seeing the fight from Anthony Rendon. Had his cast. Winker's coming to charge the Angels' dugout. He pushes them out of the way. You know, people said he hit him in the face, whatever. What are you going to do if a guy comes storming your dugout? You're getting him the fuck out of there. I loved it. I, I feel like he's passionate about the Angels. He's bought in, and we can't wait to see what he does. We need him to stay healthy because the Angels need Anthony Rendon. But let's talk the aftermath. There was eight players ejected. There was 12 suspensions. Phil Nevin got 10 games, which I think is ludicrous. Jesse Winker, seven. I think he should have got the most. He was throwing a, a, a fury of punches. Anthony Rendon gets five when he comes back from the IL, which I think is baloney. The fact that he got five and J.P. Crawford only got five. If you look, when they got together, J.P. was raining punches down on people's heads. And you got five games? Get the fuck out of here. Uh, Andrew Wants with three. The pitcher for the Angels that hit Winker. Ryan Tapera with three, not too sure what he did. And Razel Iglesias and J-Rod with two apiece. Um, I was really shocked, though, that JP only got five um, and that Scott Servais didn't get any, the manager of the Mariners. But, hey, I was all for it. I love it. I hope this becomes a rivalry. I'm in Seattle. I'm going to the rest of the Angels games. So, so let's get it on. And guess who eliminated the Mariners last year from their playoff re run? the believe signs, all the shit that they did, your Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, and your boy was representing. Lastly, 
in in MLB news, the Astros have three had three pitchers throw a no hitter against the Yankees. It was a team affair. Um, pretty wild that that lineup of the Yankees got no hit. Not gonna lie. Big young stud Wander Franco returning to the Rays. The Rays are in the playoff hunt as they always are, and uh, always surprisingly to me. Um, but they get a, a power bat back in their lineup. And then Peacock announces that they're going to stream the Kansas City Royals and Detroit Tigers game on July 3rd without announcers. They're going to have reporters interview fans around the ballpark to give you a feel what it's like to be in the ballpark. And they're going to have scouts talk about what they're looking for in the game. So that'll be an interesting take. See if it's successful. I'm sure we'll see things over Twitter and social media because I won't be watching. This past weekend, the Mariners did beat the Angels 2-1, sadly. The Astros tie the Yankees to two in a four-game series, a potential ALCS showdown preview. The Red Sox sweeped the Hot Guardians 3-0. The Braves beat the Dodgers 2-1. The Brewers beat the Blue Jays in an ALNL battle 2-1. And the Phillies beat the Padres 3-1 in a four-game series. Now, when we look at it, the standings as of today, the Yankees are 13 games ahead of the Blue Jays and 13 and a half ahead of the Red Sox in the AL East. The Rays, Red Sox, Jays, and Yankees are all in playoff position, though. The Twins are three games ahead of the Guardians. The Guardians going four and six in their last 10, getting a little bit colder. The Astros are 10 and a half ahead of the Texas Rangers, who are surprisingly in second place. The Angels, two, uh, two games back of the Rangers. In the NL, the Mets are three and a half games ahead of the Atlanta Braves, who are six and four in their last ten. The Mets are four and six. The Phillies, not too far back, seven and a half. In the NL Central, the Brewers retaking the NL Central lead, a game ahead of the St. Louis Cardinals, who are five and five in their last ten. The Brewers are seven and three. In the crazy NL West, the Dodgers back up top, a game and a half ahead of the Padres and five ahead of the Giants, all three teams in playoff positioning. So this weekend, we have some fun matchups. This Friday, the Angels taking on the Astros on Apple TV's Friday matchup. We also have the Rays taking the Blue Jays in that NAL East showdown. The Cardinals taking on the Phillies as both teams battling for NL playoff positioning. The Yankees taking on the Guardians. The Guardians trying to look to see if they could turn it around against the Red Hot Yankees. The Padres taking on the Dodgers. That's going to be a fun NL East, or is that the NL East? No, NL West showdown. And then the, you know, battle for the division potentially. And then the White Sox taking on the Giants, a fun AL-NL battle. Sunday Night Baseball this week will be the Phillies and Cardinals on ESPN. I won't be watching none of that. I'll be in Vegas. Dirty 30, UFC 276. Your boy's ready. Finally in the NFL, uh, Rob Gronkowski officially retiring from football. The Steelers getting a big-time signee as uh, Stephon Tuitt retired. They signed Larry Ojanjobi to a one-year deal. The Bears are going to sign him to a like a three-year, $33 million deal, but it, he was dealing with lingering foot issues. But I'm glad that he's going to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. He's played for three AFC North teams, Bengals, Browns, and now Steelers. 
Deshaun Watson's NFL disciplinary trial is happening yesterday or happened yesterday. I haven't seen what the ruling is, but once it's ruled, uh, he can appeal, which would be either decided by Goodell or an independent ruler. And then Aqib Tlaib joining Thursday Night Football team for Amazon this football season for their Thursday Night Football. And Terry McLaurin signed a three-year, $71 million extension with 28 guaranteed. Other hitters around the sports world, Brooks Kepka leaving the PGA Tour to join the Live Tour. The biggest recruit, in, mem in my memory anyways, Arch Manning choosing Texas. Texas then adds eight commitments um, from from different recruits days after Arch Manning committed. Um, you know, horns down for sure, boomer sooner. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see if Arch Manning can bring Texas back to glory. And then Rock Nation's former CEO to become the Big 12 commissioner. Gonzaga, Michigan State finalizing... Um, a game to be played on an aircraft carrier in San Diego on November 11th. I believe it was Michigan State, North Carolina that happened. It was the first time they did that. It was fucking awesome. Must see TV. I would love to see it. Tom Izzo, Gonzaga. Let, let's make it official. And then Serena Williams coming back into tennis. Uh, her first major event in quite some time and loses in her return to Wimbledon in the first round. Uh, crazy to see Serena the GOAT in women's tennis. But your boy, we got shit going on. Good baseball, NBA offseason, always a wild fucking roller coaster ride. Can't wait to see what the Jazz do. But UFC 276, that's all the hype. We'll be recapping it next week, episode 90. See you guys next week. Go, Avs, go!